0: We've been working our way through the book of Hebrews in this series called The Incredible Christ. And I want to wrap up today by looking at just one verse in chapter 12. In verse 2 it says this. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him, and that, that joy that was set before Him was the joy of knowing that our lives would be forever changed by the power of the cross." for the joy set before Him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Here's the phrase I want to focus in on. He endured the cross. Now the cross is such a familiar icon to us, isn't it? But I fear that what the meaning that we attach to the cross, the symbol of the cross to us, is vastly different from the meaning or the symbol of the cross in the first century. Uh, just uh, curious, uh, how many of you have a, a cross that you wear or have as a piece of jewelry? Yeah, quite a few of us. How many of you uh, have a cross that hangs somewhere in your home? Yeah, again, a lot of us. Uh, this is a really cool cross. This, one of the girls at the office picked this out, and it hangs in the, the front of our office at Cross Point and I think it looks really cool. You know, um, we, we've had the cross here on the stage. Uh, for the last uh, few weeks during this series, and some of you have said, oh, I really like uh, seeing it there. And, you know, we, we don't have it up here all the time, because when something becomes permanent, it sort of just becomes part of the scenery, doesn't it? And it really, we just don't even notice it anymore. We don't see it. And I'm, a, I'm afraid to a certain extent that's what's happened to the icon of the cross to us. It's just, it's just part of the scenery. We don't notice it. I also have a, a strong sense, a strong feeling, that we are so far removed in time from the moment when the cross was used as an instrument of execution that its significance has been lost on us. Did you know that the cross did not become the symbol of Christianity until 300 years after the death of Jesus Christ? In fact, the early leaders of the church prohibited anyone from drawing or using in any art form the cross, the symbol of the cross. Why? Because they had seen the horror of the cross. They had seen the crucifixion of Jesus, and to them it was, there was nothing glamorous or artistic about the cross, about the horror of the cross. They had seen its reality. And to them it was nothing but a symbol of pain and suffering and human degradation. And so, to them, they did not take lightly that cross. And yet over time it's everywhere, isn't it? It's everywhere because of one single crucifixion. You see, the the Roman government used crucifixion as a fairly regular form of execution with Jewish men. By the thousands, actually. In fact, even though there were though all of those literally thousands upon thousands upon thousands of crucifixions, deaths on a cross, the cross means something to us today because of one single solitary crucifixion. Were it not for the crucifixion of Jesus, the cross would mean little to us. In fact, you know what the, the truth is? If it weren't for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, we probably wouldn't even know what that is. But it's everywhere to us today because of one crucifixion. Because of the significance of that crucifixion. And so I want to try today, and I'll probably fail, to remind us of the significance of the pain and the suffering of that old rugged Roman cross. So if you've got your Bible or your phone, would you make your way to Mark uh, chapter 15? It's the story of Jesus' crucifixion, and I want to read it to us again today, I hope in a a fresh way. Uh, Mark is the second book in the New Testament part of your Bible, Matthew, Mark, and we're going to be in chapter 15. Let me kind of set the story up for you where we're going to pick it up. Jesus has already been arrested by an angry mob of people. They didn't really have a legitimate charge against him. They were looking not just to punish him, but really to eliminate Jesus Christ. And so they trumped up these charges and this angry mob of people arrested him and they take him to their officials. And again, they don't really have any good charges against him. There's no reason for Jesus really to be crucified except for the fact that in the process of all of the events that happen, Jesus gives them a reason, really. They ask him if he is the Son of God and he says, I am. And had He not admitted to that, which to them was blasphemy, they would have had no reason to crucify Him. Jesus really gives Himself up to be crucified. They take Jesus to Pilate. And Pilate is very reluctant to hand Jesus over to the crowd who are screaming for His crucifixion. Pilate searches for a way to set Jesus free, but the crowd demands Jesus be crucified. That's about where we pick it up in verse 15. I want you to notice as we read, beginning in verse 15, the incredible detail that the writer uses here. I think sometimes there was this tendency to think, well, this story will just be thought of as some myth. It'll just be... The story that gets passed along. And so he writes with incredible detail and history here. Because I think the writer wanted us to know this really happened. This is not just some made-up story. This is some not some myth that got passed along through the generations. This happened. And here's history to back it up. So verse 15 begins with this. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, this is Pilate's. Pilate released Barabbas to them. You see, Pilate had this idea that he would ask to give the crowd a choice. He said, I I can release this guy named Barabbas who was a horrible criminal, or I'll release Jesus to you, thinking the crowd would choose Jesus over this horrible criminal. But they wanted Barabbas. So he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Before he handed him over to be crucified, he had him flogged. He had him beaten with whips. And maybe you saw this depicted in the movie The Passion of the Christ. It's a it's a horrible scene. The way they carefully processed taking this whip, probably with rocks attached to the end of it, that tore the flesh of his back apart as they whipped him. I think Pilate thought, I'll have him flogged And maybe that will be enough to satisfy them, and then I can set Him free. But they weren't satisfied with that. They shouted that He would be crucified. It's amazing that He lived beyond the flogging. Many people died after being flogged, not immediately, but within a short period of time, they would die because of infection or the blood loss. But Jesus was somehow able to continue on all the way to the cross. Verse 16 says, The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, That is the praetorium, one of those details. And called together not just a few soldiers, but the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him. They twisted together a crown of thorns and they set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews, mocking him. And again again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him, mocking him. And when they had mocked Him, they took off the purple robe after it probably had been on His body long enough that it began to adhere to the fresh blood. They ripped off that purple robe. They put on His own clothes. They led Him out to crucify Him. Then verse 21, again notice the detail. He names the man and where He's from and who His relatives are. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross, probably not the whole cross, but that cross beam that they would nail Jesus to. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, in case you weren't from Jerusalem. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, which was a form of a narcotic. But he did not take it. And so you have all of this detail that Mark gives us as he describes this story from beginning to end. But when we get to what seems to be the key part of it, when we get to the part that we have a lot of questions about, suddenly he doesn't give much detail. He just makes a very simple statement. It's a huge statement. Because the next statement is what changes history. He simply says in verse 24, And they crucified him. And they crucified Him. Why not more detail? You know the reason why? Because for Mark's audience, it wasn't a mystery. They had seen a crucifixion. And to give detail to them would simply have only brought more dishonor to Jesus. They had seen the horror of crucifixion, and to them there was no mystery. Now to us there is mystery, isn't it? Because we have never heard the screams of agony. We have never heard the cries. We have never heard the sound of a nail pounded into human flesh. We have never smelled it. And we have never had to turn our eyes away. To us, there was a mystery. To them, there was no mystery. To us, unfortunately, often it has become little more than an icon that we wear as jewelry or we put it up in our home. There is some debate about exactly how Jesus was crucified, or at least how they did Roman crucifixions. There are many that think that the way he was crucified was how we most often see it depicted, where his arms were simply stretched out and a nail driven into each of his wrists. There are other historical documents, though, that show there was an alternate method for crucifying people in Roman by the Roman government. They would take their hands and they would cross them above their head and they would drive a single nail through both wrists. Either way, it would have made it difficult for Jesus to breathe on the cross. In fact, historically we have come to find through the concentration camps in Germany and the way that they tortured the Jews, That often they would take Jewish people and they would tie their wrists together and they would hang them for their death. And they discovered historically that when you take a person and you hang them like that, it is very difficult to breathe because of the way it stretches your body out. It makes it difficult for your diaphragm muscles to work. In fact, found in those Jewish camps that often a person hung like that would die within an hour. Sometimes they would actually hang weights on their ankles, making it impossible for them to stretch at all. And within 10 to 12 minutes, they would pass. But the Romans were much smarter than that because they wanted those who they crucified to suffer extensively. And so they would take and put a platform at their feet or they would cross their ankles and drive a nail through their ankles so that during the time, they would be able to push up a little bit. And for six hours, Jesus struggled breathe. Rubbing his raw back against the timber of that Roman cross. Until finally he died. And with his last words, Jesus said into my Father's hands I commit my spirit. In other words, I am giving up my life. No one is taking it from me. I choose to give it up for them. Jesus did that for you. C.S. Lewis has a great quote. He says, Crucifixion did not become common in art until everyone died who had seen one. You see, because we are so far removed from it by time, It is almost impossible for us to completely grasp the horror of the cross. The horror of dying in that way. And yet Jesus did that for us. Jesus did that for you. And I don't know about you, but when my heart grasped that, there is a part of me that wants to just get off by myself and fall on my knees before God. And there is a part of me that wants to just worship a God who would let His Son go through that for me. You see, in the commonality of the icon of the cross, don't miss the horror of it. The horror of what Jesus did for each of us. God, I thank you for the cross. My heart is gripped by the horror of what your son suffered for me. God, I can't imagine the depth of your love that would cause you to allow your son to suffer like that for my sake. God, would you help us today to begin to grasp that kind of love? God, to grasp and to understand the significance of the cross and what it means for each of us. God, thank you for loving us like that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.
1: So the question that haunts me is why? hear this talk of the suffering of Christ I ask myself, really why? See I was raised in church, I've been in church my entire life, I've heard this story over and over again and yet today I'm confronted with this once again and I ask myself, why? Why would Jesus this? Why would God set it up so that I could choose to rebel against him in sin? Why would God set it up so that it requires a blood sacrifice for the sin to be paid for? Why would Jesus leave heaven, come to earth, live as a man, and willingly give himself for me? Why, maybe some of you have heard this conversation, Daddy, Why do birds fly in the sky? Well, because they can't fly in the ocean. well, Daddy, why? Well, because fish swim in the ocean. Well, why? Because fish can't walk on the land why? Well, because land is for the animals to walk on. Why? So they can go get ice cream. I don't know. The whys just keep coming. Have you ever had that conversation with a child? Where he just can't stop asking why? 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 And eventually, it gets, usually it gets to the point where, but why, daddy? Well, because. And then what do you hear? Why? Well, just because. Why? Sometimes I feel like that when I go to God. Sometimes I feel like I'm in this endless cycle of, I don't understand. I don't know why. I can tell you today that there is no other answer to the why question. The best I can do for my kids, sometimes is just give them up because... But God has an answer to the why question, and that answer is love. The love of God goes beyond anything you and I can comprehend. The love of God goes beyond anything that I could possibly muster up on my own to come out of me. We've just sung the song, He is Jealous for Me. Love's like a hurricane. I'm like a tree, bending beneath the weight of His wind and mercy. The hurricane love of God is so overpowering, so overwhelming, that the strongest of oaks have to bend beneath that pressure. The hurricane love of God comes upon us, and it goes beyond what you and I can can withstand. The love that is overpowering, overwhelming. Why? Because He loves. In Hebrews chapter 9, we're told that Jesus purchased our redemption by His own blood. By His own blood that He shed for Himself. He said, He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but He entered by the most holy place once for all by His own blood, thus obtaining or purchasing for us eternal redemption. The only reason that could be done is because of love. The only reason. Philippians chapter 2 says this, Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Why would Jesus, the Son of God, leave the throne of heaven and humble himself to take on the form of a man and walk amongst us, live a sinless life, and go to a cross death that he didn't deserve? Why would he do that? No other explanation other than love. About six years ago this time, in 2005, my parents made a trip down here from St. Louis. They flew down for a special occasion just to tell us in person that my mom had cancer. And it wasn't good. And you can imagine what that news does to us. You can imagine how we prayed for God to heal her. And what she went through for the next years. She went through intense treatment. Two different times they took my mother to the point of death where they took all of the blood cells out of her body and washed them and put in new blood cells. Try to give her an opportunity to live. About a year ago, she went on a, a new experimental kind of treatment. And this past week, I got this email. I just got home from the doctor's office. The bone marrow biopsy showed that I am indeed in full remission. And she goes on to tell me some other things here, medically, about doctor's appointments and treatment, etc. She says, thanks for your prayers. Ain't God good? And then this final statement, I don't know why He loves me so. As I stand here today and I look to the God of heaven, I don't know why He loves me so. Every one of us in this room stand before God. I don't know why He loves me so, but He does. That's all the explanation that we need. God loves us so. Father, I don't comprehend your love. I don't understand your love. Today, God, I receive your love. I thank you for your love. I thank you for the love you demonstrated for us on that cross. We pray in Your
2: name. Amen. We heard Jeff talk about the cruelty of the cross. And then we just heard Jan talk about the love. But what about hope? You know, the death of Jesus Christ on the cross gave us an eternity of hope. Didn't it? But when we talk about that hope, what does that really mean? When I have the opportunity to watch TV... Sometimes I find myself tuning into the HGTV channel. I like those home improvement shows, you know, I'm a do-it-fix-it kind of girl. And one of the things that HGTV does every year is they do a dream home giveaway. Has anybody heard it? Anybody? Oh, yeah. This dream home is like no other. They always pick the most amazing piece of land, you know, maybe an ocean view. Or a mountaintop hillside, whatever the view, it's always a panoramic view that you can see from almost every room in the house. And I find myself going to that that HGTV site and looking at those pictures, every room, the spectacular soaring cathedral ceilings, those rich textures, how they decorate the home, and I visualize what it would be like if my family lived there. How it works. The sweepstakes is every day you can submit an entry to try to win this home. So every day I get on the computer and I submit my entry. And then every day I get on the computer and submit an entry for my husband, you know, because of course he wants me to. Right, honey? With the hope that I might win. And then finally that day comes where they are going to give away this home. And they don't just, you know, pull it out of a hat. They actually drive to the neighborhood of the person who is the winner and they knock on the door. So I always make sure I'm home on that day just in case they come knocking on my door because I just hope that I win. You know, it's this type of hope that is just wishful thinking, right? There's no certainty at all that what I hope for is going to come true. This is not the same kind of hope that we talk about when we think of the cross. The Greek and Hebrew translation of the word hope in the Bible means certainty and confident expectation. That's very different than the wishful thinking that we are so used to. So as Christ followers, when we accept Jesus Christ in our heart as our Savior, we're not wishfully hoping for eternity. We are confident and have certain expectations that what God promises in the Bible will be fulfilled. You know, the promise that we are forgiven for all of our sins. The promise that He loves us. The promise that when we're in eternity, that we have a dream home that He's prepared for us. In the Word, He has a mansion specifically designed for each one of us. The hope and the promise to know that this world is not it. This is not the end. The trials, the pains, the struggles that we go through every day. And don't we go through struggles? It's temporary that we have much to think about. When we go to heaven, we will have no more sickness, no more disease, no more cancer, no more arthritis. If you can't walk, you will be able to in heaven. If you're blind, you'll be able to see. There's no glasses in heaven from what I hear. And we will be reunited with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we will experience a joy, a hope, a peace that is unimaginable. And the greatest thing of all is we will live in the very presence of God. You know, the truth of the matter is, we have a choice of who and what we put our hope into. I want to read a passage from Psalms 131, verse 3. It says, O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, now and always. By that verse it says, put your hope in the Lord. That implies that we have a choice. Are we going to put our hope in our career, in other people, in money, in power, in all the stuff that we collect, in sports or entertainment? Or are we going to put our hope in Jesus Christ? I'm going to refer to another scripture in Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 35 and 37. It says, So do not throw away this confident trust in the Lord, have you ever prayed to God and said, God, oh, how I trust you. You have that confident trust that he's going to just provide for you. But then life happens and we start to struggle. And what do we do? We try to take control back, don't we? I've done it. I'm sure many of you have too. What do we do? We just throw away that confident trust. And right here it says, do not do that. Do not just throw away this confident trust in the Lord." But remember the great reward it brings you. Patient endurance is what you need now so that you will continue to do God's will. Then you will receive all that God has promised. All those things that we just talked about, there are. We don't have to hope for it. It's certain. For in just a little while, the coming one, Jesus Christ, is going to come again. And He's not going to delay. I don't know about you, But instead of putting our hope in things and people of this world, I would much rather put my hope in Jesus Christ, where it is certain and then we can have confident expectations that God's promises will be received. You know, I have a feeling there's probably some people in this room who maybe haven't made that final step in giving your hope to Jesus. And I'm going to tell you today, what are you waiting for? It is right there. God is wanting to give it to you. And it's so simple. You don't have to do anything. All you have to do is just say, Yes, Jesus, I want you to be my Savior. I would like to invite our shepherds and their spouses to go ahead and make their way to the sides of the auditorium. And if God is prompting you today, I encourage you to be bold. Listen to God's prompting. And one of our shepherds would love to pray with you and help you make that decision today. Let me close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for your presence this morning. I know I felt you, and I think a lot of other people did too. And God, if there is someone in here that has not completely made that decision to put their hope in you, I pray that you will prompt them to do so right now. God, as we were reminded today of the suffering and the cruelty that you went through, it's almost more than we can understand. But we are so thankful that you love us so much that you would give your life for us. God, thank you for that forgiveness. And most of all, thank you for the hope that you bring to us, Lord. And we want to spend eternity with you, God. Just thank you for that. It's in your name we pray.